Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 154 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with our friend Nicole Braddock about using design thinking to build tech solutions to legal problems and about why none of that can probably fix some of the problems built into the legal system today. Nicole is on the podcast for the third time. Yeah, she's our first three-peater. Holy shit. <laughs> I know, it's kind of cool. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, FreshBooks, and Ruby Receptionists. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you a little bit more about them later in the show. So I guess with today's conversation with Nicole about technology design and access to justice, it's another good opportunity for us to step back and kind of chat about what this access to justice goal is all about and how our listeners and the small firm legal community in general can support it in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I think it feels like this big, multifaceted, complicated thing. I think it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. But we do have a professional obligation to try and help. And I think most lawyers, uh, at least the lawyers that I want to hang out with, believe that we ought to do something to help. And so we thought maybe it'd be useful to talk about some of the things that you can do. Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting dynamic that we've talked about on the show before where there's for sure the distinction between access to justice and access to lawyers and that you can have your legal problem or your life problem with legal implications solved without necessarily needing to engage a lawyer. And so not all access to justice problems are access to lawyer problems. And then I think there's kind of this parallel track of issues to unpack where there's a distinction between small firms that have built their business model around being able to help solve problems of access, whether that's around unbundling their services or how they do their pricing or giving away some free do-it-yourself content on the front end, whether that's also as part of their lead acquisition strategy or just as a service to people who need it, um, is I think separate from people who then volunteer their time in pro bono efforts or people who donate their money to legal charitable causes. And even those things are probably separate from what you can do as an advocate for justice system administration change, whether that's through bar associations or lobbying or whatever. Yeah, they're all different. And I guess part of it is trying to think about the way you can do the most good. I mean, like, you know, I volunteer at the Court Self-Help Center and I sit down with one client at a time. So I usually help two, three, four, five people navigate the legal system every time I go. And it's probably not the most impactful use of two hours of my time every other month, but I do really enjoy it and I like doing it. But, you know, I think there are, there are other things that you can do. You know, I used to make some forms available and thousands of people used them to help their legal problem along. And all I had to do was tweak some of the forms that I was using myself and gave them away. And so I think there's a variety of things that you can do uh, up to and including just getting out there and, and volunteering your time in your community. Yeah. And we've got some TBD law alumni who have sliding fee or low bono firms or who have 
DIY forms, platforms for clients. Aaron Levine, who was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, has a kind of divorce content option for people, both for no money or low money before engaging a lawyer. And so there are lots of opportunities to use your existing firm model to help in some way solve the access to justice problem. You know, one of the things that's interesting, I'm spinning up off that, is like the more deliberately and strategically you design your firm's business model and client service model, often the more you incorporate things like technology into it. And so it becomes easier and easier and easier to offer stuff for low price or for free that doesn't give away the entire value of your firm, but that does provide value for the people who are able to use it that way. And I think you talking about some of the people we know from TBD Law made me think about that because a lot of them, that was just sort of the natural result of the work that they were doing on building client-centric firms. Right, and it can be effective marketing too for what that's worth, but it's definitely not the point. I mean, I think there's this question of, I think there are absolutely a number of our podcast listeners who want to build firms, hopefully that pay them a salary for the purpose of helping to solve the access to justice problem. And therefore, one of their core firm values and their business model should be centered around ways that they can help solve that. But I think any firm, even one that isn't built around the purpose of solving this problem, has some obligation to do what it can, whether that's donating time or money or advocating for change or just figuring out little ways that the firm's model can be used to help in some way. And so I think in this conversation with Nicole, you're going to see how much the system needs to be changed. But before that, she's going to walk you through her design process for building legal solutions, which I think will be really interesting for those of you who are trying to apply design thinking or trying to build client-centric firms. First, we've got a brief sponsored interview with Ruby Receptionist about words to avoid when you're answering your own phone. And then my conversation with Nicole. Hi, this is Diana Steepleton with Ruby Receptionist. Ruby is the only remote reception service dedicated to creating real, meaningful connections with callers, building trust, and helping you win business. Hi, Diana. So I was hoping you could help us with some tips for answering the phone. Uh, I know Ruby has answered a lot of phone calls and knows first impressions count. So what makes a good law firm greeting and what makes a bad one? Well, let's start with what makes a bad one. A lot of law firms answer with this, hello, law office kind of idea, or even worse, sometimes just a gruff hello, because they're in the middle of something and, Mm -hmm. you know, the phone interrupted them. But it's much more reassuring for the caller to hear something that tells them a number of different things, offers them some gratitude for calling, lets them know who they've reached, which firm they've reached, and ideally the person they've reached, and then give them some offer of help. So we have a very simple recipe for how to make a good greeting here at Ruby. Um, It would start with could include the good morning, good afternoon idea, could or could not, up to you, and then move right into the thank you for calling because, you know, you want to express some gratitude to them. You are grateful that they called. They might be your next giant client, right? And then let them know where they've reached and the person they've reached and then offer some help. So when you roll it all together, it could look something like, good morning, thank you for calling ABC Law Firm. This is Diana. How may I help you? Fantastic. I think that goes a whole lot further. Yeah. I love the recipe. So speaking of what to do and especially what not to do, you've identified a few phrases we should avoid, which are I can't, I don't know, and hold please. So what's wrong with each of those and what should we do instead? Well, the problem with those is that they're very much dead ends. If someone calls you and asks if you can help with something and you say, actually, I can't, 
then they're just stuck there with Mm -hmm. no idea what to do next, you know? Um, And there's so many easy ways around it. You will find yourself in situations where someone calls you and asks you for something and you can't help them. Um, But what you could do is put them in touch with someone who could help them. Um, So rather than saying, gosh, I can't help you to say, let me put you in touch with so-and-so, or let me see what I can do to help you, or let me figure this out and get back to you. Any Anything that you can do is better than just a total dead end of, I can't. And the same goes for the I don't know idea, rather than, you know, if someone asks you what time something happens or when something's going to, you know, or what's going to happen at a certain juncture, and you don't know, or you can't manufacture information that you don't have, but just to say I don't know, again, just gives them this dead end. Um, but to say, that's a good question, let me find out for you, or that's a good question, let me find the person who can help you with that, or Susie would be the best person to talk to about that, let me see if she's available. Any of those kind of answers is just so much better. And then finally, on the hold, please, you know, particularly if you call someone, and a lot of times when people are calling attorneys, they're very stressed, and they're calling someone, and the person who answers the phone just immediately says, hold, please, and slams them on hold, it's very distressing. Um, and often people will actually just hang up because they, they, don't, they don't feel welcome, if you will. It takes only a couple more seconds to say, would you mind if I place you on hold for a moment? And then wait for them to say, sure, or, you know, no, I don't care. And you put them on hold. So may, may I place you on hold or do you mind holding for a moment? It goes a lot further than just the hold, please, click. I feel like when somebody says hold, please, it's right up there with having a robot answer the phone as far as how <laughs> off-putting it is. Exactly. It does not breed confidence either, you know. So Ruby has obviously answered a ton of phone calls and knows a lot about what makes effective phone answering and what doesn't. You can find out more and get Ruby's free guide to the words that can help you turn callers into clients at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. Once again, that's callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. Thanks, Diana. Thank you, Sam. I'm Nicole Braddock. I'm the CEO and founder of Theory and Principle. We're a design and development firm uh, that builds exclusively legal technology. Um, And so we work with clients all across the legal industry to create uh, custom web and mobile applications. Do you know how strange it sounds to say that you are a design and consulting firm building legal technology? Like that that is such a 2017 thing. (laughs) Why? Wait, I mean 2018. Jeez, what year is it? Yeah, we're 2018. I was like, I thought you were telling me that I'm, I'm old now. No, I mean, that those words wouldn't have even made sense to anyone uh, five years ago, and maybe not even two yeah. or three years ago. I suppose that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as I know, we're we're the only shops that dedicated exclusively to legal tech, so there's, there's not a lot of it going on right now. There's, there's other firms that do some legal tech as, as, long, as well as other things, but, uh, but that's all we do. So what's, what does your typical or ideal client look like? Are you working for firms or bar associations or what? Um, so it, it really can be anything. We bar associations that are looking for, for new ways to, to serve their members. It could be uh, law firms that are either looking for ways to improve their processes internally or are looking for new ways to engage with their clients. Um, it can be uh, legal aid organizations or other um, uh, people, uh, funders that are interested in legal aid uh, who want to build products uh, to, um, to improve access to justice. And access to justice is kind of your, that's what you're really interested in, I think, or most interested in, I should say. Yes, we do a lot of access justice work. Very cool. 
Um, and and I, I wanted to talk to you about one particular bit of access to justice work that's still in process, so we're not going to talk specifics about it. But maybe first we could talk a little bit about the process, the design process that you bring. I'm, I'm curious how you approach designing solutions for legal problems. I guess we'll use an access issue as, as an example. Uh, one of the first things that we do is we're posed with a problem. And that, that's how I like things to start out is a, a problem. I always get a little wary if somebody comes to me and says, okay, we have this app we want to build and we want it to do X, Y, and Z. Um, that I always sort of encourage backing up quite a bit and starting at the beginning, which is to really understand uh, the problem. And uh, annoying designer people call it the problem space, and then there's the solution space. But those are really annoying <laughs> words, so we'll avoid those. Well, I was going to um, ask, like, do you do you prefer like the Stanford introduction to design thinking paradigm, or the, a different? You know, is there is this the empathize phase for you, or the discovery phase, or? Yeah, so we're we focus exclusively on product development, which means we borrow a lot of from a different a lot of different methodologies. Um, you know, design thinking is not necessarily geared towards the development of technology. But for the early phase, before before there has been a solution that has been validated, um, we do pull from a lot of design thinking principles. So yeah, this is where we get down and dirty. And you know, the first thing we usually start with is just looking at the available data. Um, so if we're looking at, so we've built a product in the past aimed at veterans. So naturally there, we start with looking at, you know, what's the age of the typical veteran in the U.S.? Um, where do they live? What kind of jobs are they doing after they've left um, their service? Uh, what, what's the typical grade level that's been achieved? Um, what are the common problems? Um, so we look at the available data, the hard data, um, and then we also start mapping out the existing issues. So usually like a more specific issue has been identified, a more specific problem has been identified. Um, so we'll do a lot of mapping of um, you know, the existing legal landscape that affects this this particular uh, problem, the existing processes, whether it's court processes or, um, you know, intake or whatever it may be, we map out what the existing process looks like, um, and we do a ton of interviews. That's that's usually uh, a really large part of this early phase, and that's talking to experts who work with the target demographic, um, and sometimes that takes months. So, so that early process of just understanding the problem and digging down really deep is is a very substantial chunk of the process of discovery. You know, this is, I think, something that distinguishes design, but also is something that lawyers ought to be able to get their heads around, which is when somebody brings you a problem, you don't immediately assume that you know what the solution should be. You know, uh, somebody says, you know, I, I need a new calendar. Well, hold on. Let's take a step back and understand what your needs are what the problem you face is. Um, and and I think it's that idea of let, let's make sure we really um, have our heads around the problem that we understand and are empathizing with the people who need the problem solved. We understand what's been tried and what's failed and, and what may have be, may be the problems with what those solutions were and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think this is one of the things that really makes design thinking stand out is that process of taking a step back and trying to get the big picture. It's very true. And I would say that Clients come to us in a variety of circumstances. One is they have not done any sort of in-depth research into the problem. They just know there is a problem. Um, and, and 
then you know we'll, we'll take that and, and and run the full discovery process. Some clients have a very good understanding of the problem and maybe have even validated a potential solution, um, and that's fine as long as you know. I, I think having sort of an objective third party look at it sometimes really helps as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's very easy, specifically in technology, where you know building an app is very sexy, right? Law firms want to build apps. Uh, everybody wants to build some sort of app, right. and uh, and oftentimes it's, it doesn't make sense for who the user is, how they'll be using it, what their problem is, and it's very hard to walk back once that, that process gets started. So uh, so it's good to get in early and, and get a really firm understanding. And, and the best clients are the ones who sort of understand that you can't walk into it with any pre-existing ideas of what this product's going to be. Um, and that's very hard. It's hard even for designers. So you go through this discovery phase. You're trying to learn as much as you can. And then what comes next? So during this period, we're trying to sort of build an understanding of, of who this user is, what their barriers are to achieving a certain goal. Um, so, so through that, we're workshopping, you know, what, what are the user's goals and, and what's getting in the way. Um, so we're building uh, during that whole time what we call a provisional user persona. Um, user persona is another annoying uh, jargony word, which really means like trying to put together a sketch of what what the person, the user looks like. And obviously, you're building for one user, but but it'll scale to uh, you know a much broader range of users. But uh, it's very helpful to have one person in mind. Um, and I say provisional because you want to you you want to keep an open mind about um, whether or not you have the right user. For whatever mm-hmm. the product is, so so from from all of this understanding, uh, you create uh, prototypes, which is our next step. And I think I'm jumping around a little, but um, but basically, we want to make sure that the solution that we come up with is is going to match with the provisional user persona. And if it doesn't, maybe we have a great product for a different group, or maybe we have a you know the right user, but such a wrong solution. So I I worry a bit about personas because I worry about like social and cultural biases creeping into those personas. And I'm wondering if are are you on guard for that, and like how do you try to keep that out of the process? Yeah, I I, I really actually am, am very hesitant about the use of personas in a lot of circumstances for that reason. Uh, so what I what I really like to do is create this provisional persona, and then um, and then after prototyping and and get, getting some actual users in. Uh, try to identify, you know, what a real user looks like. This is a mm. real user. And so then I start building in my mind for an actual person that I have talked to and met and understand their problems. And, and I think that helps eliminate a lot of the biases. Um, but then also you can update your provisional persona when you have a better sense. And I think when you're actually out there talking to potential users, it helps you identify where those biases lie. Very cool. So when you're prototyping, what can that look like? I mean, what, like specifically tell me more about the process of prototyping. Yeah, sure. What I will say is that I think a lot of like legal design generally, you see like on Twitter and stuff, there's all people who sit around um, at, at design sessions and they're, they're creating things with like Play-Doh and stuff. Our job is a lot easier because we're building technology, right? So, uh, so I think when you're thinking really broadly about a problem, like how do we make the actual physical court more accessible, um, those things are much harder to prototype than, um, you know, let's, let's come up with some options for technology. Um, so, so we always start with the, the output that we want the user to, to get. What, what is their goal? And then we sort of work backwards from there uh, about um, – uh, what this product could look like. So, um, so the first thing we do is sketch out what we call the critical path. 
what are the critical activities that a user needs to take to get to this goal? And the goal may be, you know, understanding an area of law. The goal may be having a client understand if it's time to call you as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It, it depends on what, whatever the user's goal may be. So we start out by sketching the critical paths. And then from there, uh, we do some a lot of uh, sketching sessions just on paper. So we get a group of, you know, oftentimes our clients involved, and then it's, you know, a group of designers and engineers. We get sort of a multidisciplinary team. Back-end developers love it when you rope them into sketching things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's their favorite. Uh, but then we start sketching out options um, for each sort of state in that critical path. And, and we do that in a very design thinking style where, um, where it's, it's very timed. And so we, you know, we say, okay, we're going to, we're going to sketch this state. Everybody take 10 minutes, draw as many things as you can, as many ideas as you can, and then we'll come back and share it. Then we'll, we'll share it as a team and then we'll all. Um, sort of mark the ones that we like better, and then we'll continue to refine it that way. And so once we have a refined sort of physical sketch on on paper, uh, then we turn to, there's a million prototyping applications out there, um, to turn it into a really rough idea of of what the application could look like. And that means like a pretend app. Right, like a, you're a trying to app. yeah. yeah. So, okay. So there's buttons you can click, but all the data is fake, um, yeah. and uh, and it's not going to be as pretty. It's not going to be nearly as pretty. I mean, you can you can put a lot of effort into prototyping, but for our purposes, that sort of defeats the point of really quickly getting getting something out there, getting um, input and feedback, and um, and actually, you know, there are circumstances where the prototyping looks quite different. Uh, we recently tested a chatbot, for example, and. Um, and believe me, like I'm not big on the chatbot hype, so I was a little skeptical. But we, the best way for us to, to test the chatbot was not to spend all this time building this um, fake app. Uh, instead, we did it's called like a Wizard of Oz test. So, mm-hmm. um, so that the test participant was in a different room and um, was using a, like a Facebook Messenger interface, and then and, and they thought they were talking to a bot. But on, in another room, we had people on the administrative <laughs> side of that Facebook bot actually like responding, and it was pretty funny because there were some times where, where we instructed the, the person who was responding to, to insert more like, I don't know what you're saying, <laughs> but to add a little bit of frustration for the user. Um, so sometimes, you know, it, it's, it's rigging up a, a lifelike setting like that that's short of creating a fake app. So prototyping helps you figure out if you're on the right path, and then I assume you decide what you're going to test and then commit to it. Yeah, so, uh, well, decide what you're going to build. So yeah. what what often happens in the first round of testing, we call that validation testing. So you want to validate that you have a solution that you that you feel pretty certain is going to, to solve the problem of the user. And so if, if you go into that first round of testing and you get amazing validation, everybody's saying, wow, this is, you know, this is incredible. And you're seeing how they're using applications that, um, that, that this is something that's going to provide value. Then, yeah, then you, you sort of commit and you, and you start to build. Uh, but oftentimes there is some course correction there. You'll see that there's, there's some things that work, some things that didn't. You may get, you know, if you're testing with five people, you may get two people who like it, three people who don't. Mm. And, and so you incorporate that feedback. You're trying to prove your concept, basically. Yeah. As best as you can. Then you decide what you're going to build. Yep. And so at that point, you just build it. And then uh, do you continue testing and evaluating it once it's done? Yes. And that's so we test like during the process, the building process as well, not just after it's done. So once we have, you know, a state that's, that's in a reasonable working format, we'll go out and test that as well. Um, but then at the end, ideally, we'll do 
continuous user testing, the, the product is never done. Um, part of our challenge as an agency is, is that um, I think it's really hard for clients to, no, no matter how much you explain to them this, this sort of agile development process and, and the, the benefits of, uh, of continuous testing and iteration, it's very difficult once the product is out there for clients to, to want to, to keep sort of engaging you to do that work. Right. They feel like, hey, we bought it and we have it, so we're done. Yes. Exactly. And so, so my job, our job is to, is to make sure clients understand that the whole way through, uh, because, you know, what we're putting out there is going to be useful, but it can always be more useful. And if, you know, if you stop there, then, then you're not, you know, you're not uh, seeing the full capabilities of, of this platform that you've built or the, so the software you've built. So, uh, so yes, we think it's critically important. I mean, I'm, I am curious how you talk about that though. Like it, sometimes this process feels like a big expensive labor-intensive uh, bit of overkill. I mean, I, from the outside yeah. looking in, I, I mean, I, it, it feels that way. And like, I, I mean, I design shit all the time and I often just throw something together and see if it works. And then if it doesn't, then I try to make it better. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, how do, you, how do you persuade people that this process is more likely to get them to the good outcome than just, hey, you're telling me I need to do all this stuff, but I see a tool right there. And I'm pretty sure that's the one I need. Yep. So I think part of the benefit we have right now is that Agile is seen as very sexy. It's, you, know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't go a day without seeing an article. So I think clients who are interested in application development usually come in with some understanding and framework uh, of how agile development works. But it's a challenge. So, so we give our clients a lot of information up front, written information, and, and talk through the process. And, um, and I, I think the fundamental truth is that the client, not the user, the client has some goal for this product. Mm -hmm. it, the goal may be I want to generate more clients. The goal may be uh, I want to be able to bill more hours by creating some efficiency. The goal may be I want to serve a greater number of low-income uh, people who have family law issues. No matter what, so, so you got to think about what the actual client's goals are, and you can always do better at meeting those goals. So I think it's always in the client's interest. You know, if your goal is to serve as many people as you can, then let's keep making it better. If your goal is to get more clients, well, let's keep looking at the data. Let's keep testing the clients and find out how we can make this even better and, and get you more clients. Yeah. I think one of my fears is I think there's been an explosion and an interest in legal technology apps, especially in the access to justice context. Um, but I think so much of it is great. We launched an app. Let's check the box and have no idea, you know, never look at the data, never look at how people are using it, never try to make it better. Um, it's very easy to build software products right now. You can, you can spit them out no time, but it's very, very hard to build a good product. Yeah. Do you have a favorite design book? It would be a good book for somebody who wants to get their head around it a little bit better. Uh, Hooked is a good one. Ooh, okay. Um, there's, a, there's a book called Build Better Products which I like, which takes sort of the basic design thinking concepts and makes it a bit more concrete if you're building actual technology. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great one. Uh, and then there's the, the Google Ventures one, Sprint. That's an, that's an excellent one to read to get your mind thinking about this stuff. I think the process they outline there is not super practical for unless you're a large enterprise or your, your company is a SaaS company. Uh, and that's, that's all you're doing is building the software. So, yeah. um, but I think that, I think it's very good to get people sort of oriented into why we do all this design legwork. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. I want to switch gears and um, ask you some questions about 
what this looked like in practice uh, during one of your recent projects. So we'll be back in a moment. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Being a self-employed lawyer is hard enough, which is why dealing with your day-to-day -day paperwork on top of it all shouldn't have to be. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud-based time and billing software that will help you work smarter, get paid faster, and become more organized. With FreshBooks invoicing, you can create and send polished professional invoices effortlessly in mere seconds. FreshBooks can set you up to receive payments online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. You can track your time either by using their mobile app or your desktop, meaning you'll always know what work you did, when you did it, and who you did it for. There's also a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment upfront when you're kicking off a project. To feel the full impact of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Ruby Receptionist is a live remote receptionist service that is dedicated to helping lawyers win clients and build trust one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's friendly professional receptionists ensure exceptional client experiences by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, collecting new client intake, addressing common questions, making outbound calls for you, and more. Just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. More importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. For a special offer, visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018 or call 844-715-7829. That's 844-715-RUBY. Okay, we're back. And Nicole, I was just fascinated by this recent post that you did for us, which uh, now you were doing a, a design project for somebody where you're trying to work with uh, low-income tenants. And as part of that, you went into the courtroom to do some research and see what it what the experience of going to court was really like uh, for um, the, who I imagine were the kinds of people who this solution would eventually serve. Uh, and I, I mean, just walk us walk us through that experience, trying to look at this through the eyes of just trying to learn rather than a participant in the court system. Sure, and uh, yeah, I guess through this some of this in the article, this background, but I think it's helpful to know my background which is, um, I was an attorney, I guess I am always forever an attorney, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a litigator predominantly in federal court for eight years. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the courtroom, and um, and because I was in federal court, I didn't often see myself up as a litigant. Um, I occasionally spent, some, you know, from time to time, I'd have a client with a small matter that that is um, you know, a state court matter, and I would pop in. And um, so, so I've been in state court, from the view of an attorney and, and those were tended towards early days in my practice where I was, I was really focused on learning how to practice law. Um, so I saw what was going on there, but I was more concerned about, you know, am I standing in the right place? Am I saying the right thing? Um, you know, this, <laughs> if you come from federal court and go to state court, it's the wild, wild west. And yeah. they're, they're just trying to get a handle of it because it's a wild ride. So you were kind of coming in with fresh eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, but I didn't realize how fresh they were. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, I thought, you know, I, I, I was a litigator. I was in court all the time. I, I thought I'd seen what there was to see. 
Um, but I think the, the distinct difference is seeing what there is to see from the eyes of somebody who's going through it uh, as a participant and, and not as a lawyer or a judge or a clerk. Um, and that it, it creates a phenomenally different experience. Um, and, and one that was really very uncomfortable, to be honest. <laughs> well, say, say more about that. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the first things that you notice when you're in, this is sort of the cattle call day for, for eviction cases. Um, and it was a situation where, you know, we've walked into the courtroom. First of all, it was a bit complicated trying to figure out where, which courtroom to go to. But we walked into a courtroom, and there is just the clerk at the front, um, and there's a lot of uh, people in the gallery, and everybody in the gallery was a person of color that I observed. Uh, and the clerk was white. And when the judge came out, the judge was white. And when the lawyers came in, the lawyers were white. And so there was, there, you walk in, and there's already this strange feeling of imbalance um, that I hadn't experienced. And part of that is I practice name, and everybody here is white, so... <laughs> but um, but there was this, it was it was sort of very notable and very tangible. And then the clerk was not the world's nicest guy. Um, and and I'm I'm saying that uh, that's a very nice way of saying it. So I, I wanted, <laughs> one of the first things we saw is um, you know, the defendants had to walk in and tell the clerk their number, which they had were supposed to have gotten from a, a list on the wall outside. One of the first experiences we saw was a man come in, obviously uh, had very limited English capabilities, a Hispanic man, and the clerk started screaming at him, what's your number? What's your number? And this guy, like, he had no idea what he was saying, and the clerk just, this enraged the clerk that this man had no idea what he was saying. And I think this man could have understood had the clerk sort of, told him in a calm, normal voice. So then he starts, and the, the gallery is full of people. He starts screaming at this man who's standing in, in the aisle going up to the court to get outside and leave the courtroom to go get his number. And it was like, I had goosebumps. I had goosebumps all up and down. I, I was, it was really like a... I mean, it sounds super uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable. And, and that was like the first of many similar experiences that we witnessed while we were there. Um, and it, it, the defendants were just treated like, like animals. Mm-hmm. there's no better way to say it um and so that was pretty upsetting and i like you know there's already people who are coming in with no legal representation no full you know probably no full understanding of what their rights and obligations are and, and so everything's stacked against them they they landlords most of the landlords have attorneys and so the um the attorneys there's there, there were um, conference rooms actually in the court, which I thought was really strange, too, where some of these negotiations were happening. And, and I can't imagine <laughs> that many of those were uh, very favorable to the defendants. You know, they're, they're, it, was just, it was a zoo. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I, I practiced in some federal court, but I practiced a lot in state court. And, um, and because I, I handled debt collection cases, I, I sued the debt collectors and I defended people sued by debt collectors. I used to sit in on some of those similar calendars. And you, you sitting there, you realize just how stacked everything is against the pro se litigant. You, you know, I, I didn't encounter clerks yelling at people, but, um, but every day people wander into court and they aren't sure what to do. Because there's no sign in yeah. that says check in with the clerk that explains who the clerk is, where they are, and how to check in with them. Just check in with the clerk, yep. and what is that? What the hell does that even mean? I was never even sure how to go about it. <laughs> and this is a big high-rise building, which wasn't like a typical courthouse. It was a, a right. huge high-rise. So, 
And there was no, absolutely nobody in any part of the process getting through security, getting to the elevators. There was nobody available to tell you anything. There was no signage on the ground level to tell you where to go. Um, certainly no signage in, in multiple languages. So when you got up to the floor, if you were able to make it that far, all the signs was in English. And nobody there. There's not a soul there to help you. Um, there was, there's, a, there's an organization in the basement of this, this particular courthouse that is there to help, but like I had a really hard time finding it. <laughs> hmm. Like it, it's, it's hidden. And I assume because it was a housing court, you were basically just watching one tenant after another lose. Uh, I'm sorry. So most of what I watched um, were not the hearings. It was hmm. um, uh, it, it was uh, going up and, and um, talking to the judge about a consented to order, which was which was similarly uh, hard to watch because mm-hmm. you know I saw circumstances where the judge would say. Um, all right, and you understand what you're signing, right? Yep. And <laughs> which, like, no, they don't. <laughs> I, I very, I feel very doubtful that in most cases they understood that. In one case, there was a man who had limited English skills, and he brought his like some family member uh, who's a minor to help translate. And she trans, like, she asked the minor, like, does he understand all this? And the minor says, yep. Like. <laughs> I'll be a, like, you know, the, the secondhand translation, it just, it, it all felt icky. That's the best word is icky because like, you just, the fact that, the fact that you, you could even like get there and show up is, is great. And then once you're there, the imbalance is palpable. But if you can get over that and, and get through negotiating something with a lawyer, hopefully it's something that's beneficial. And then you have to appear before the judge who, who thinks you understand what you signed. Um, and then like, there are things you don't even know to ask for, like, you know, sealing of records. Can, can this record be sealed? Right. Um, that's something that, it, because if it's not sealed, then you're screwed ever getting housing again. In the article you wrote, uh, speaking of kids, in the article you wrote, um, it, it's interesting because we, we ordinarily think of access to justice as either access to lawyers or, um, you know, um, do-it-yourself legal services or something. But what we don't actually think about is that sometimes access just means, like, actually accessing the halls of justice, right? Like yeah. you point out that in order to get in, in order to get there, just to get into the courtroom um, on your day, you have to know and understand English. You have to get time off of work. You pr- might have to get childcare. You have to you have to figure out how to get there. You may not uh, you may not have to drive. You may have to find parking, which is really expensive in most urban areas. Um, mm-hmm. You have to bring this. You have to bring the right documents. You have to spot your number on the wall. You've got to get through the building. You've got to get through security screening. You got to figure out what floor to go to and get into the court and check in and wait. And then you probably have to confront a lawyer on the other side who mm-hmm. um, is basically just toying with you at this point because they can do. They know everything about what's going on and you know almost nothing. And then you have to tell the judge that you know what you just did and it, it like just just access just physically getting to the court and and going through the motions of getting screwed is actually difficult much less actually getting any sort of justice out of it it's really a monumental challenge it is it is and and i'm honestly i'm not quite sure how how we overcome it at this point i think all this this whole system this whole process uh was designed by people who are not in the shoes of the self-represented litigants um and so I think there's from the start we didn't have considerations of of how hard these things might be for you and me. All that's easy. We don't even have to think about yeah. it. And so if we were writing if we if we were writing the rules, like yeah, just show up, come to court, 
talk to this lawyer. If you can't agree to something, let's have a hearing. Like, duh. But that's just not how, that's not the reality for the vast majority of Americans. Yeah. I mean, you, you, for, for many people, what it looks like is you, you overcome all of those challenges to get to court to watch the judge mm -hmm. quite literally rubber stamp a document that's, that decides what happens to your case. And I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you take away from that? How do you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering how, how you start to even the scales. Yeah, I care. Obviously, I care a lot about how we can use technology to improve the system. Um, and technology can do some things. You know, technology can help people better prepare. Technology can help to demystify getting to court where to sit in the courtroom, sort of uh, uh, take away some of that unease of the unknown. Um, technology can help you understand um, what is a good deal with, you know, in, in a negotiated settlement, um, what is not a good deal. Technology can help connect you to, to experts who, can, who may be able to help you. Um, technology cannot change the physical plant. Technology cannot change court rules. Technology cannot change culture and attitude and behaviors that are, are well ingrained. Um, so I feel like, you know, me and my team, we can have some impact on helping people through a shitty system. Uh, sorry, am I allowed to curse on this? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. Cool. <laughs> um, I should know that. Oh, we didn't talk about the fact that I am the first three-peat you've ever had. And that's really special. <laughs> so we should acknowledge that. That is. You are our first three-time podcast guest. Yeah. And so, you know, we can make some impact, but the impact has to be systemic. And that's a really hard work. Uh, and, and I mean, what you really want to see is courts knocking on your door saying, the problem is we've become rubber stamps yes. for, uh, for many, many legal problems. And we don't want to be. Can you help us fix that? That's the problem you need to walk in your door. Sure. Although I just don't, I don't think technology can solve all of those either. Yeah, um, well, that, yeah. And yeah, so I, I think that it's, I think, I do think it's great that there's so much focus right now on access to justice technology. Um, but the people who are doing the really hard work are the people who are out there sort of pushing for a systemic change and, and trying to make, um, uh, you know, changes to, to court rules or, or processes. That's, I think that's really the hard work that has to be done for, to make any sort of improvement. Um, otherwise, people are going to start sort of working out of the system however they can. Well, I, I guess that's a really good point. And, and I guess I'm going to climb up on my soapbox now, which is that, you know, it's it's great to do everything we can to make it easier for people to get justice within the system we have. But it's but, you know, all this all this talk of disruptive technology and legal tech is silly when the one the one thing that could really make a difference is the courts themselves that could just snap their fingers yeah. and decide to change the way things work in a way that makes them truly accessible to normal people. That's a fine soapbox. <laughs> I'll step back off my soapbox um, <laughs> and say thank you for walking us through all of that. Uh, I don't know that we have anything to take away. I don't know that we can really like wrap that up in a tidy bow. It's, um, but I suppose one thing to say is if you are, if you are a lawyer, um, you should spend the day in housing court or on a regular civil calendar call. Um, I think it will be really eye-opening for you. Uh, Nicole, where can people find you online? Uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, pretty actively at Nicole Braddock is my handle. Um, you can always email me at Nicole at theoryandprincipal.com. That's principal P-L-E, not P-A-L. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
And uh, and I think that's, I have a medium blog too, which is at Nicole Braddock. If you are interested in topics along the lines of um, product design and and access justice issues, uh, I, I rant regularly there. Very cool. Thanks so much for being with us today, Nicole. Thank you, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.